be here, and that's an interesting introduction. And uh, I thought about it. It, it, the the spookiest place to stay is in an auditorium, in a church. Because usually about three or four o'clock in the morning, you hear someone playing the Phantom of the Opera on the organ, and that's that's really spooky. But that didn't happen last night, so I'm happy. Anyway, it's a blessing to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Now, I don't preach like I teach. I don't teach like I preach. There's a great preacher of a bygone day, and his name has gone in and out of my mind two or three times as I've sat there because I thought of this statement that he made. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastored in Kettering, England. He said that teaching stimulates the mind, but preaching lays a demand at the door of men's hearts. So there's a little bit difference in teaching and preaching. So I'm just going to talk to you. Uh, in Sunday school, and I hope uh, that it'll be helped uh, help to you. And I want to talk to you about personal revival. Personal revival. Why don't you look in your book, if you would, to Second Kings, chapter thirteen. Second Kings, uh, chapter number thirteen. Now, the word "revived" is only mentioned six times in all of the Bible. Uh, four times in the New Testament, two times in the Old Testament, and that, that's it. But here's an interesting story, and I'll just give you the, just a couple of verses instead of reading much more than that this morning. Look, if you would, in verse 20. 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 20. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year, and it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And the man, when, when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the things that it teaches us, helps us with, that guides our life, controls our thinking. And I pray, Lord, that you would help in this uh, Sunday school hour. You would speak to the hearts of people, help them to see some things about their own life that needs uh, perhaps some uh, direction, some change. And I pray, Lord, if it be your will, as the pastor said just a moment ago, uh, we'd have revival this week in the hearts and lives of God's people, your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is an unusual story, a great story. And I don't need to tell the story again. It's pretty plain right there. A guy died and they threw him down in the, where Elisha was buried and the guy came back to life. That would really help an army. You'd never ha- really have any casualties. Uh, you'd never lose anybody. Just find the bones of Elisha wherever they are. But I want to talk to you about what I call the bones of revival. Just in, We may put some flesh and some blood on it uh, throughout the week, but just the bare bones of what constitutes and can encourage and help you as an individual Christian personally you know, you know, the guy sitting next to you or the lady sitting next to you or the person sitting next to you may not be interested in having revival at all. But I hope there'll be some folk in this room that 
desire to have a personal revival. That when Wednesday night is over, that's not going to be the end of your revival. It's going to keep going in your life. Now I want you to consider this initially, that prayer is the power of revival. Prayer is the power of revival. I hope you've been praying that God would send revival uh, to your church. You, You know this as well as I do, that prayerlessness is a sin. Uh, The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 23, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Now, if you've got a prayer list, and I hope you do, but I think more important than a prayer list, you ought to have a prayer life. Uh, My father passed away a, a year and a half ago, 93 years of age. My father prayed seven or eight hours every day for decades. I'm talking 50, 60 years. He invested his life in prayer. I, I've come to learn uh, one of the reasons it took him so long to pray is he would call people on telephone and ask them, uh, how's it going? Is it, prayers being answered. I preached a meeting a year ago right now in Monroe, North Carolina, large church. And the pastor, he's 82 or 84 years old, been there 50 years. And his wife has Alzheimer's. And uh, so he said, he, he told me with tears, he said, Tim, every day for the last year and a half or two years, long time, he said, every single day when your dad came to my name on his prayer list, he would get on the telephone and call me. And ask me how my wife was doing. And that's why it took seven or eight hours. He's checking up to see if it worked. And, uh, but we ought to have a prayer life uh, that's impactful in the hearts and lives of other people. Uh, I think one of the great uh, definitions or uh, attributes of, or confidences in the fact that you're saved is every once in a while you get a prayer answered. You get through to God with what you're concerned about and what you care about. Uh, I think when we neglect to pray, it shows a lack of unconcern, or a lack of concern, it shows unconcern. It's a lack of commitment. Uh, I think it's a a sin. He said, God forbid that I would sin in ceasing to pray for you. So I hope you prayed for the revival. I prayed for the revival. Pray that God would do something. There was a preacher. I think he was a better author, perhaps, than he was a preacher. I never heard him preach, but I read his books. F.E. Marsh, he said this. He said, prayer is a sin killer, a power bringer, a victory giver, a holiness promoter, a dispute adjuster, an obstacle remover, and a Christ revealer. If we would pray, those things would uh, show up in our lives. It's pretty hard to pray and be sinning at the same time. It's pretty pretty difficult to live a life of iniquity and ungodliness. Matter of fact, you probably wouldn't even pray. 
Prayer would not even be something that would come across your mind to do. But prayer will kill the sin in your life. It'll deal with it. It brings power. It brings victory. It surely is a holiness promoter. When you get in the presence of God, you're not going to walk in there with dirty clothes. Spiritually, I'm talking about. Dirty mind. Dirty mouth. You're not going to get to God living a life of iniquity. Confess our sins and get right with God. And then have access uh, to the throne of grace. I think prayer's a disputed adjuster too. You think about it. I don't know. You might be a Christian who's never had uh, a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ. No one's ever said anything to you that hurt your feelings. You never said anything to anybody that hurt their feelings. Uh, you never did anything. You know, you're you're one of those one of those almost angelic. But most of us have uh, done some dumb things. And most of us have said some things and acted in ways that we ought not to. But prayer will help you to get those things adjusted, get, that, get things worked out. And I think really revival comes to a church when people get right with one another, get right with God, uh, get those obstacles out of our life that keep us from being uh, what we ought to be. I scribbled down an old poem that I heard years and years and years ago. And uh, it kind of, you know, I wrote it uh, this morning early. I don't know if I'd ever written anything on a bed, like the bed that's in there. And I was laying there and, and, and you know, as you put the pressure of your pen down, the bed was going up and down, up and down. and I, So my, my handwriting is not very good. And I think it's worse what I wrote this morning. I don't know if I can read, read it. But it goes like this. I dreamed many a dream that never came true and I saw them vanish at dawn. But I've realized enough of my dreams have come true that I'm just going to keep dreaming on. I've trusted many a friend that failed and left me to weep alone. But I've found enough of my friend's true blue that I'm just going to keep trusting on. I've sown many seeds that fell by the way for the birds to feed upon. But I've held enough golden sheaves in my hand that I'm just going to keep sowing on. And here's for today. I've prayed many a prayer when no answer came, though I've waited patiently and long. But answers have come to enough of my prayers that I'm just going to keep praying on. And I've known the cup of disappointment and pain and I've gone many days without a song, but I've known enough of the goodness of God that I'm just going to keep keeping on. May God help us to be faithful. You know, the Bible says this, that the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I would want to have a prayer life that availed much. I mean, all of us, I mean, we had a prayer for I think it was is the baby that's yeah, sick. Frederick. Frederick was the last name. I don't know where the mother and dad are today. Maybe in the hospital with the child. I don't know. I had a, we had a our, our son when he was fourteen years old had a stroke, had a cerebral hemorrhage, paralyzed in the whole right side of his body. We spent seventeen months in the hospital in therapy with that kid. And I mean, in those opening hours of that situation, prayer was, 
Prayer was the buttress. Prayer was the bedrock. Prayer was the thing that helped us. You say, what happened to that boy? Well, he's been a missionary in Mexico for the last 20 years. Give us three wonderful grandchildren and uh, serving God. Uh, he still has some health problems, some situations. But, I mean, you know, prayer is not something to dilly-dally around with. Prayer is, prayer is probably uh, in the top ten of the gifts that God has given to us or uh, the top two or three tools that God has given to us as Christians to use in our life. Revival comes through prayer. Then I want you to think of another thing. Uh, Prayer is the power of revival. Forgiveness is a byproduct of revival. There's Christians in this room. I've been a Christian for 53 years. There's Christians in this room that have done some dumb things after you got saved. You've said some bad things. You've done some bad things. You've had problems and you didn't react to them properly. We all, and, and you know, you can let that stuff eat your lunch or you can forgive yourself. I think we need to forgive ourselves. Some people beat themselves up uh, for some dumb they did 40 years ago. You go to God, you ask for forgiveness and go on and serve the Lord. Put it behind you. We were talking a little bit earlier and I didn't know the uh, that I knew the pastor's wife or knew her parents. I didn't know that until we were coming back from the airport late last night. I spent a lot of time in the airport yesterday, got on the plane and had to get back off the plane. I mean, 250 people getting off a plane and getting back on it. And then we sat there on the runway for an hour. I don't know when I got in. It was close to 9.30, 10 o'clock, wasn't it? Something like that last night. Supposed to be here at 5. For, for, and we were going to go out to dinner. I miss that too. But... uh I started a Christian school in 1974 in my father's church in Michigan. And uh, I don't know how it all happened. I think one of the school teachers uh, in, our, in the Christian school, one of the ladies, she said uh, to me one day, she said, do you know uh, Barbara Udarian is in town? Well, I didn't know Barbara Udarian. I didn't even know who she was talking about initially. Barbara Udarian is... A, was the wife of Roger Udarian. Uh, he and four other fellows, Nate Saint, uh, oh, Jim Elliott, and a couple of other boys, they went to uh, South America, uh, Ecuador, way, way back in the 50s. And they were martyred. All five of those young men were martyred. They had gone into a village. They were killed. Uh, trying to help these people, and those ladies all became widows. Well, Barbara was from our town, from Lansing, Michigan, where I grew up. She went to the big church there in town, and so she was there on leave. She really was retiring. And uh, so I said, well, yeah, I guess she can come and talk to the kids. So we had an assembly, and we had a pretty good-sized Christian school back in those days. And that precious uh, white-haired lady, beautiful white-haired lady, I think everybody with white hair is kind of pretty beautiful or handsome, one or two. I just just have a a feeling that way. But uh, she came, precious little white-haired lady, 
And she talked to those students. She, this, is a, this is a modern term, I guess. She blew us away. She said that she had gone back to, uh, she had worked in Quito, uh, Ecuador for years in the mission office, but she had gone back to the village where her husband had been murdered, had been martyred, and those other four boys, and of course that village has entirely been one to Jesus Christ over the years, and I believe it was Nate Saint's widow that went back in there and did that great work, and it's still going to this day. But uh, she had gone back there just to say goodbye to people. And she said, one morning I was reading my Bible, sitting on a little uh, veranda and uh, just a dirt floor or sand on the floor. And she said, while I was reading, she said, I felt a presence uh, come into the room. And I looked down and I saw a pair of bare feet. And they were kind of just nervously going back and forth in the sand. And she looked up and she said, well, hello, Uncle Coquita, how are you? He said, Miss Barbara, I, I've come today to apologize to you. She smiled. She said, you, you don't have to apologize to me for anything. He said, yes, I do. He said, I am the man that cut the heart from your husband and buried it at the beach. That precious little lady said, from the sole of my feet to the top of my head, in a millisecond, came rage and this awful, for just a millisecond. Then from the top of my head to the sole of my feet came love and forgiveness for that man. And she said, I forgive you. I don't know if anybody's killed your husband and there may be somebody in this room that that's happened to. I got a message yesterday that a preacher friend of mine in Michigan, his daughter, precious, beautiful girl, I don't know, maybe in her early 20s, was shot and killed by her boyfriend. And then her stupid boyfriend put the gun to his head and killed himself. I thought about it. I wish he'd have put the gun to his head first. She'd be alive. Coward. The boy's a coward anyway. I don't know. It may have happened to somebody in this room. I don't know anything more difficult to go through in life than something like that. And yet she forgave. I think forgiveness is a byproduct of revival. If we have revival this week, I hope there'll be people that will forgive. Forgive one another. Uh, Forgive yourself. You know, this is a hard thing to think about and I don't want you to react but you know sometimes we have we get so tied up with the stuff that we quote unquote suffered and we blame God we have to forgive God that's a horrible place to get to in a Christian's life when you think God's mistreated you or didn't do me right or you know, I had to go through this and had to go through that and suffer this and suffer that. And we get upset with him who has forgiven us and provided the way of forgiveness for every sin you've ever committed. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Thank God for that. I don't think I'm going to get through with this whole thing. 
I want you to think about this. Prayer is the power of revival. Forgiveness is a byproduct of revival. Repentance is the lost key to revival. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to sanctification, we need to repent. We need to repent of our sin. I was preaching in a church. Really, it's a, the last church I was in that we really had a, it wasn't a large church. Maybe they run a couple hundred. But I mean, one week we had scores of people saved. Just a tremendous uh, outbreak of souls being saved. And they had a pianist. She played this song. I never heard anybody play. I don't know if she wrote it. I don't know where she got it. But it had this lyric in it. He took me out of Egypt. Now take Egypt out of me. He delivered me from Pharaoh's hand. Now deliver me from me. You know, that's it. The analogy is God took us out of Egypt. But the problem with most of us Christians, we still have too much Egypt in us. We're loaded with it. We're inundated with it. We we can't get over it. We, We let the world control how we think, how we act. You know, I don't even know what this means, frankly. I woke up this morning. But we live in a day, they use that term, woke. I, th- I think the definition might be stupider than you've ever been. I, I don't know. God help us. God help us. We need to repent. I think sacrifice is a missing link to revival. I was... Uh, I used to work, uh, I've been an evangelist since 76, but I used to work with a film company. We made Christian films. And so I would go and sometimes a month or so and just work in the crew and play a part and all that stuff. And so a friend of mine and I, we were going to, he wanted to, he got a script. He paid a lot of money for a script. And he was trying to raise some money for it. We went down to, I met him in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. We went to some kind of a meeting, you know, where some guy, rich guy, was supposedly supposed to, he didn't do anything. But they had a big meal afterwards, and we sat at large tables. I think there were eight people at a table. And uh, I, I didn't know anybody else at my table, kind of split up. And so somebody asked this young man a question. He said, how's your folks? And he said, they're, they're doing pretty good, and... Uh, then he told this story. There were missionaries in Hong Kong, but they would go into Red China and uh, work in villages out in the way out in the bush. And I'm going to tell you something. There's lo- there might be more real Christians in China than there is in America today. I mean, people, I'm not talking about in Beijing, and I've been there, and I've been in places all over the world, but I mean way out in the bush. Those people are genuinely converted. But I, uh, he, he told this story. His mother and dad, they w- would go to these villages and work with these people. And one day they got a, a message that this entire village, uh, 300 people, had uh, the communists had come in. And they said, now, do you believe, uh, you know, in Chairman Mao's little red book, and I've got one of those little red books at home. I, of course, I can't read Chinese, but I got one just as a souvenir. But that's what he believed and what he taught. And that was, that was their Bible. And they, 
would put these people on their knees and hand them that uh, little red book and they were to kiss it. But if they wouldn't kiss it, they'd get their heads chopped off. So they wiped out this entire village, 300 people. Just piled their bodies. And he said, my dad and mother were so upset about that that they just left their bodies to rot. They sold everything they had in their home down to the coffee cups, took that money, went into that village with other people and tried to put bodies with heads and gave those 300 people a Christian burial. There is a Christian burial and um, just tr- tremendous sacrifice. And I mean, you're, you know, about the only sacrifice, I don't know what time, sh- what time does the church start at night? Seven? 5.30 tonight. How about tomorrow night? 6.30. 6.30. I'm not a long-winded preacher. We'll easily be out of here by nine or ten o'clock. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> a couple hours. I don't think we'll be here two hours. You know, I would be, be fine with me if people were getting right and people get. I don't have far to go home where I'm sleeping. <laughs> About 20 feet from the door. And if it's going too long, I'll just go to bed and you guys can go on. I don't know. But I mean, just sacrifice a little bit. Yeah. A couple hours. You know, I don't know, maybe you live a half an hour away and a half an hour home. Uh, Oswald Chambers, he, he somebody, uh, you know, everybody knows about that devotional of his. But he, he wrote scores of books. I've got them all. They've got them all in one big volume now. And I've got all of them in little, I've got a shelf about like that. And they're just beautiful, wonderful books. And the guy, I got reading him, he changed my life. He made a lot. The guy died when he was 41 years old in Egypt during World War I. Uh, just a brilliant man. He taught in Cincinnati, where I live now, at a place called God's Bible School, which is a holiness Bible college, still going. It did pretty good till about, until they hired two teachers from Bob Jones University who took them away from the King James Bible. They believed the King James Bible was the word of God for 105 years. Now for the 50, last 15, they're into the ESV. What a, what a, who would want that on your resume? I wouldn't want it. I, don't, I believe the King James Bible is the word of God. Amen. Period. I'm not looking for anything else. But uh, Chambers just was a great guy. He said this one time, thousands of things, he's thousands of things, but in one of those books says, it says this, too much of me erases him, but enough of him erases me. And I think that's where we need to get to. We, we don't matter that much. God matters. His will, his work, doing things his way, his word. Uh, that's what really, really matters. Too much of me, me. You know, I, I know preachers, all they talk about is themselves. That's about the last thing to talk about. Talk about him and what he can do and how. 
He can affect one's life. I can't, I can't change anybody. I was in the airport in Atlanta yesterday. A kid come up to me all dressed in black. And, uh, you know, he hadn't shaved for five days, it looked like. You know, those goofy kind of things. And uh, he had a big guitar and he had another big thing. And he said, hello, Brother Green. I didn't even know who he was until he told me. He used to go to the Christian school that I started way, way back when. Now he's some kind of a, a Southern gospel troubadour singing. Uh, I dressed like this at the airport. I'm the only guy now, me and the pilots, we're, we're the only ones that wear a tie anymore on the airplane. You say, why do you do it? I'm stubborn. I'm just stubborn. This, way, this is the way everyone, when I started flying 50 years ago, every man on the plane dressed like this. Now they wear their pajamas and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And they're, you know, they're probably a whole lot richer than I'll ever be, but uh, it seemed like, I don't know, it's just a different day. Let me give you my last little thought. Confession is a vital ingredient to a revival. Public to a there's public confession. There's private confession. You know, if you have offended a brother or sister, I've been in meetings where, you know, uh, sister so-and-so said this about me and I'd like to have her forgive me. Well, that's not a dumb way to do it. Go privately to that person. Get it worked out. You don't have to drag your dirty laundry into the church and tell everybody about it. Now, if you know if I don't know. I've met a couple guys, so I don't really know. I'm not going to point anybody out. But uh, the young man that was a song leader, what, what's your name? What is it? Andrew. Andrew. Are you related to the preacher? He's your dad? Well, let's just say for sake of discussion <laughs> that Andrew got drunk last week. <laughs> And uh, he got pulled over for a DUI. And I don't know, you know, I live in a little town. We don't have it anymore, but for years, I guess probably since COVID, we don't do it anymore. We had a little newspaper that came out on Wednesday only. And in that little paper, there was all the marriages. There was all the divorces. There was all of the criminals who had done dumb things. It's all, it was all in the paper every, every week. And let's just say you had a little paper like that here in Hunts Valley or wherever we are. And so next week, uh, Andrew shows up, arrested, had a DUI. Well, everybody, everybody would know that. So he, it would be incumbent upon him to confess his sin to everybody I, and apologize to the church and get right. Or you ain't leading songs no more, son. I'll tell you that right now. Amen? Amen. That's what you ought to do. I mean, there's private. And there, there are sins that people in this room have committed in their lifetime that you don't confess to anybody but God in heaven. Because he's the only one who can do anything about it. He can bring forgiveness. Thank God for that. I, I, I'm, that's one of the greatest things, I think, in the, in the world is to have your sins forgiven. I wonder... I wonder why people want to live with things that you know in your life that you know God condemns. 
when you can live a life that God will commend and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why, why do we want to do things uh, that are displeasing yeah. to him? Why, why, why do young people want to do things that they think they can get away with instead of just doing things that are right? Why, why would a husband want to hide things from his wife? Why would a wife want to hide things from... Why would you want to do things that you have to hide from somebody that you care about and love? You're not getting away with anything. None of us are. I, I read a lot of old stuff and I got a... Two or, this guy wrote three volumes of stuff. His name was William Law. He said this, and I'm done. If we were, if we were what we were supposed to be, we would be so different from other people as to worldly temperaments, sensual pleasures, and the pride of life. As a wise man is different from an idiot. If we were what we were supposed to be, there'd be such a contrast between us and the world. He said, as a wise man is different from an idiot. It would be as easy a thing to know a Christian by his outward life as it is now difficult to find anybody who lives the Christian life. He was a 17th century writer. What about today? What about today? 